This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by us, Ed Curation. Because in this episode, we're talking about all the ways that high-quality instructional materials not only increase student outcomes on all levels, not just academic, but they also increase teacher efficacy, retention, and improve overall school climate and culture. And that's what we're all about at Ed Curation, getting the best resources into classrooms faster to increase student success. Why is this important? Because teachers deserve the resources to help them do their jobs effectively without burning out. And because high quality curriculum has been shown to help students outpace their peers by four years of learning. We put success at your fingertips. Find us at edcuration.com. And I've spent the past decade plus working in advocacy, communications, policy, research, really trying to understand the connections between what happens in the classroom and how policy decisions are made. And I've lately become very interested in quality materials. That's our first guest today, Jocelyn Pickford. We're super excited to learn from her because we too are focused on the massive difference that high quality curriculum resources can make in classrooms for both teachers and students. Jocelyn hasn't always worked in advocacy and research. She started her career in education as a ninth and 10th grade English teacher, as well as teaching in a special education inclusion classroom. She then had an opportunity to work with the federal government to impact education on a larger scale. She became an education policy and communications specialist, and you'll learn more about what that means very soon. She's a senior advisor to the Collaborative for Student Success, and she leads the Curriculum ABC blog on CurriculumHQ.org, where she leverages experience as an educator, former school board member, and mom of two to discuss how high-quality curriculum can drive student progress and set educators up for success. But before we jump into talking about instructional materials, I just had to ask her that question that I think we teachers always wonder. Who is making educational policy decisions? And are these people at all connected to what actually happens in classrooms? I'll be the first to say that when I was a teacher, I had very strong feelings about how those, you know, seemingly faraway policymakers had no clue what was really happening and, you know, how could they make decisions on our behalf? And then going into that role and living in that other world, I really deeply experienced, first of all, most of the people in those policy roles are former teachers or, or have had a lot of experience in schools and classrooms, care tremendously about what's happening. And that's why they're, they're in that work. And that um, there really are easy ways to bridge those gaps. And I think a lot of states are doing that really well and trying hard to do that. But it's important to always keep those lines of communication open. So lots of room for growth there. But I, I have seen examples of it being done well. I was so happy to have access to someone that could answer that question. And I was also reassured by her answer. More to the topic at hand, I was curious how quality instructional materials has become Jocelyn's passion and the real focus of her work. My passion for this area of ensuring teachers, students, and families have access to quality materials and a quality instructional experience in the classroom is personal on two levels. First, as a teacher, and I was a teacher many years ago in the early 2000s, as I mentioned, in Fairfax County, Virginia, and I had a wonderful group of colleagues, but 
you know, my curriculum consisted of five novels and an anthology that I was handed at the beginning of the year and sort of told good luck. Um, there were no instructional materials that went with it. There weren't common assessments. There weren't ways that I could collaborate with my colleagues to see how maybe their students were doing compared to mine. Um, it really felt like a, like a choose your own adventure. And I was making things up a lot of the time. And I want to believe everything I made up was of high quality, but I'm sure there were times that it wasn't. And I was Google searching and I was doing all the things we hear about. I'm trying to provide a great experience for my students, but often, you know, doing it without that support. Um, so having lived it as a teacher, now being exposed to what some of these instructional materials look like and the deep training that happens, I can only imagine how much better off me and my students would have been with that type of support. And then my second sort of hat of passion for this is as a parent. So I have uh, a rising eighth grader and sixth grader this year and watched them learning virtually, you know, up close at home through the pandemic and got deeply exposed to the materials they were using and how, you know, the challenges really came forward in the pandemic. And, you know, no fault to our district who, like all districts, was just trying to do their best adapting to a virtual environment. But seeing that many of the things in place were not sufficient for my students at that time um, have now become really passionate as a parent as well to try to advocate for these tools and training. Joining Jocelyn and me today is Joshua Parrish. Josh is the communications manager at the Collaborative for Student Success. Prior to becoming a math and special education teacher, Joshua worked on issue-focused political campaigns. And like Jocelyn, he's passionate about education policy, civic engagement, and ensuring that teachers have access to high-quality, evidence-based instructional materials. And like Jocelyn, I asked him why. As a high school teacher, uh, teaching both math and special education math courses, as a, you know, I had a special education um, certification and license, uh, both of those, you know, areas are high need. So I was kind of doubly stretched thin um, in terms of the roles that I could serve in my school. In my four, you know, four and a half years of teaching, (laughs) I taught everything from pre-algebra to pre-calculus. I mean, algebra one, geometry, algebra two, statistics. Um, and I saw an incredibly wide range of diverse students, diverse student backgrounds and diverse student abilities, you know, like six or seven or eight grade level bands in terms of where they are at in their math journey. Um, when I first entered the classroom, I was given not much but a set of state standards, and I did spend a lot of my first year teaching piecing together what I needed to engage my students, to deliver instruction, and to hopefully, you know, make some progress with them. Um, thankfully, I had a great network of, of teacher colleagues um, and, an, and a cohort organization that, that connected me with the school in the first place where I was able to get professional development and, and be exposed to elements of high quality instructional materials that fundamentally changed my experience in the classroom. Um, you know, having to not do that and, and, and piece together all of my lessons for seven, seven different courses at night Um, and instead be able to use evidence-based, high-quality, rigorous, intentionally planned and thought-out materials to engage that that wide range of students every day um, was a game-changer. And so that really inspired my passion for the topic because I see that high-quality instructional materials, it's all about empowering 
and equipping teachers to do the absolute best that they can with um, with all their students. Yeah, I can just imagine the number of teachers listening and just kind of vibrating with how much they resonate with what you're saying, because I was that teacher also. And I'm wondering, with the work that you're doing through Curriculum HQ, your organization, Jocelyn, and the Collaborative for Student Success, are you seeing this change or are you still seeing that this is a common experience for a lot of teachers entering the classroom? It's a great question. So fortunately, we, we have a, a little bit of research behind this. So, you know, groups like Ed Reports and uh, the Council of Chief State School Officers and RAND uh, are tracking this and have shown that nationwide only about 30% of teachers are consistently using high quality materials that would be, cons- you know, sort of evidence-based, third-party validated, endorsed by educators. So that means, you know, three quarters almost of our teachers are still struggling in the ways that Josh and I described and are not, to, to your question, being being empowered and equipped um, with what they need to be the most successful. So I'm sure, you know, we'll talk more about some of the specific exciting examples of progress because we certainly don't want to be all negative. There is an urgent need to continue this advocacy and spread awareness so that, you know, more materials can get where they where they belong in, in teachers' hands. And it's not because those materials aren't available. I mean, there is high quality curriculum out there, right? So why is why are they why is it not getting into teachers' hands? So yes, and um, certainly in core subject areas like English language arts and math, we'll see the greatest proliferation of of these evidence-based, highly validated materials. To be fair, in some of the other subject areas, there aren't as many that you know have made different lists and that, you know, have been completely vetted uh, per se. That doesn't mean there aren't still great things out there in science and social studies and some of our other subjects. But I will say, you know, ELA and math are the two biggest areas where there is a lot of choice. Um, The reason why, from my perspective, they're not getting in more teachers' hands really has to do with people understanding um, what, what it means and what it looks like. There is an old school, unfortunately, sort of an old school thought that as a teacher, you're supposed to do it all. You're supposed to make up your curriculum. You're supposed to be in charge of everything. And that was definitely how I felt going into the classroom. That was my job. Uh, now, like I said, having had a front row seat to see what it's like when teachers are equipped in this way and realizing that you know, the relationship between a teacher and a student and the teacher and the student's family is the magic of educating. And it is not taking anything away from a teacher to equip that person with great materials that they can then customize and they can then personalize and they can then tailor to their student. This isn't about a script or a playbook. This is about tools and resources that let teachers be the professionals that they are. And so I think there's just, we need to keep beating the drum of that, that this is not about, you know, taking anything away from the teacher's autonomy. They shouldn't have to be a subject curriculum standards assessment expert when they're trying to be the expert of the relationships with their students. I feel like I've just been to church. So good. So help us get smarter then about what we mean when we say high quality instructional materials, because if we're not sure that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about when we say that, that seems like the first step. Um, and you said a little bit about it a minute ago, uh, what you're, how you're measuring that and what the criteria is for that, but I'm hoping you can say a little bit more. I'll start and I know Josh will have more to add. So 
you know, the Collaborative for Student Success has launched this platform, curriculumhq.org, and we take a, you know, pretty clear position on the site about what we mean by quality materials. So one thing we do sort of do off the bat is avoid some of the jargon that people in education policy love to use. So some, some of the listeners may have heard the phrase HQIM. Many may not have, and that's great. Uh, that just stands for high quality instructional materials. But we make it really clear on Curriculum HQ, this is not a new concept. These are the materials that teachers use every day. Activities, guiding questions, home enrichment resources, um, you know, curriculum and everything surrounding it that uh, enables a teacher to do their job. In our mind, the important elements of quality materials include that they are aligned to the state's academic standards, that they include embedded assessments so that teachers can gauge how students are doing, that they are endorsed by educators and supported by these training materials and resources for families. And then very importantly to us that they're centered on equity and adaptability. And that means they can reach English learners, children with special needs, um, that in today's day and age, they have online components or there's an understanding that, you know, of students who are learning in different environments. So those are some of the key characteristics. Quick review, the characteristics of high quality instructional materials or HQIM are number one, they are aligned to state academic standards. Number two, they include embedded assessments to measure progress. Number three, educators endorse them and vouch for their effectiveness. And number four, they differentiate and accommodate all learners and their needs. Josh was ready to give us a picture of what this actually looks like in a classroom. When you put all these magical pieces that Jocelyn just talked about in a classroom, how does that differentiate it from a classroom without? Um, and, and for me, it's all about experiencing and observing the behavior of teachers and students in the classroom. Um, so you can imagine, you know, a, a classroom without these types of materials and resources and tools um, centering the, the the teacher as just a provider of information. You, we all kind of have that idea of a teacher, you know, in the front of the room, the, the Charlie Brown voice. Studying? Oh, yes, ma'am. You're absolutely right. We should have been studying. But you, may I say something, ma'am? You seem to forget that you haven't given us any assignments yet. Now you've done it, here comes a stupid assignment. That is the most basic, unengaging model of a classroom that, that we can imagine. These types of curriculum and resources and tools um, that have an evidence base just increase the level of engagement and place the student as the driver of learning and, and knowledge in the classroom. Maybe the, 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 the lesson or the discussion that day is driven by questions that students have after observing a process or an activity. It's not just, you know, teacher lecturing and, and students receiving information. It's, it's discussions, it's collaborative, um, it's engaging, it meets students in different places and uses their background knowledge in different ways. So what I hear you saying as well is that high quality instructional materials shift a teacher's pedagogy significantly, which then impacts the student. What is your experience with the learning curve for teachers when they make this shift from like, I have to 
develop everything on my own, or it's my job to lecture and instill information to um, to the kind of pedagogy that high quality instructional materials invite. Is that a hard shift for teachers? Does it require a lot of professional learning on their part? Or does it just sort of happen organically once they start using these materials? Based on my experience, and I've, I've kind of seen this happen um, in a different way, you know, a couple different ways in a couple different schools. Um, it really comes down to, to school culture. If this is coming with school uh, supports and and professional development aligned to the curriculum, this is coming uh, with with additional resources and supports from the district. Um, this is coming with uh, you know opportunities to collaborate and share uh, you know best practice with your fellow teachers. Um, that makes it a lot easier to make that type of shift. It is important to think about the higher level decisions being made in the district and at the state level and and in these policy discussions because they can those discussions can deeply impact how much support and time and resources that teachers can commit to that shift that you're talking about. Yeah, I agree with everything Josh just said, and I would emphasize the professional learning part because there's a lot of great evidence out there too to say, you know, it's not just the curriculum alone. And that won't surprise anyone who's been in the classroom, but there, you know, there can be a little bit of a myth that like, okay, if we go through the adoption process and we do this meaningful search and we pick curriculum that's been rated green on ed reports and that's, you know, proven to be great, um, we're set. And, and that's it. That's the finish line. That's the starting line, actually. So then you need to have those professional learning communities. You need to have that culture of support. Teachers need to feel like they can troubleshoot and work with one another um, because, it is a shift. So, you know, it, it's, it wouldn't be right to think you could just hand great materials and just have that live on its own. It really involves that school-wide culture that Josh mentioned and the supports. One of the things we do on Curriculum HQ is talk about how even states can be supporting that, despite the fact that curriculum is such a local issue. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I know one of the tools that's available on Curriculum HQ is this interactive map, state map that you've created. Can you tell our listeners about that and how they might access it and use it and how it could inform their choices. The state map on curriculumhq.org is built to be a state level view of what state education leaders are doing to to make it easier um, for districts and schools to get their hands on these materials and use them effectively. So we, we completely understand that most of these decisions about what, you know, what materials are used in the classroom happen at the school or district or, you know, the local level. But there's a lot of things that, that you know, we've already mentioned here that states can do that make that process smoother, that make it easier, that help districts kind of sort through the, the plethora of options and, and, you know, different, you know, choices they could make. Um, and so the map on curriculumhq.org uh, takes that look. What what are states doing um, around high quality instructional materials and how are they making those those choices easier? And in some cases, what isn't being said or provided at the state level um, that that maybe could be? And hopefully with that information, folks can um, either access great resources that, that the states are providing, or maybe, you know, communicate with their elected officials, their state education leaders, and say that we would we would like to hear more from you about, um, you know, the curriculum that, that we should be using in our in our state. 
who is the map for? Is it mostly for educational leaders or any would any parent benefit from clicking in and seeing what's going on there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say our target audience right now for the map on curriculum HQ really is state level leaders and, me, and maybe district leaders. Um, but we really, in looking at the landscape across the 50 states, feel like there are, you know, 13 or 14 states that are really leading from the state level in the things Josh talked about, making procurement processes easier, making it clear, signaling quality of actual materials. If it's a state where the state has some control over approved lists, making sure the things on that list are of high quality. Um, all different kinds of things that those states are doing, which means that the majority of states, right, are, are not there yet. And so we believe there's still a real need for state level leaders to be paying attention to this, to be focusing on it and to be seeing positive examples of how it can be done. So right now, that's the primary audience. That's not to say that a parent or an educator might not find, you know, some interesting things. So I just got off my local school board. I'm, I live in Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia area. And I know as a school board member, I would have loved, you know, from Pennsylvania to say, well, what's happening in New Jersey? What's happening in Delaware? What's happening around me? So I can get a sense of how my state is doing. And then maybe as a school board member, advocate to my state leaders to say, you know, to let them know if I see any gaps there. So that that's what we're really hoping happens at this point. And then as we continue in the work, you know, looking at ways to target other audiences. But we're also aware, of, as you know, on Curriculum HQ, that there are a lot of players in this space, ed curation being one of them, right? Like this is a, a busy marketplace of information and ideas and resources around curriculum. And the last thing we want to do is compete with any of them. Instead, we're looking to have sort of a curated platform of, to spread awareness of what's out there. If you're a teacher, what should you be looking at, right? If you're a parent, where can you find resources? And at this stage, from our perspective, how do we help those state leaders make better decisions to support local decisions? If you're listening and you have some of those same questions Jocelyn just mentioned, Ed Curation is the place to start navigating the exploding market of instructional tools and resources. This is Timory Tolney, the CEO of Ed Curation. Throughout my career as a teacher, administrator, and curriculum company owner, I've seen school and district leaders participating in the time-consuming process of shopping for instructional materials. Tasked with buying decisions that impact several years of student learning and without a central hub to project manage, shopping for curriculum can be overwhelming and too often results in the newest, most innovative products being overlooked. That's why I started Ed Curation, to simplify the procurement process for school and district leaders, getting better resources into classrooms faster to increase student success. At Ed Curation, you can search for the types of resources you need by subject area, grade level, and type of resource, whether it's core curriculum, supplemental, ed tech tools, or tutoring programs. You can filter your search by evidence of effectiveness and compare programs against each other by price and more. Visit us at edcuration.com to make your search, discovery, evaluation, and purchase of resources faster and easier and get better resources into your classrooms faster to increase student success. Find us at edcuration.com where we support and supplement the work of our colleagues at Curriculum HQ and the Collaborative for Student Success. We work really hard to elevate the stories of where this work is happening and, and happening um, well in, in these different states. Um, and so that's part of you know the journey that, that that statistic that Jocelyn shared that only still about a third of teachers are regularly using high quality instructional materials 
we believe a, a key a key part of increasing that number is going to be sharing the, the the stories and the magic that happens when these materials are in place in classrooms um, and getting more uh, educators and more education leaders excited about, about their potential. Um, we also on Curriculum HQ do offer, uh, you know, the ability to, to do a little bit of advocacy. So if you learn um, about what your state is or is not doing by exploring Curriculum HQ, uh, there's a, a place on the site where you can connect to your state um, or local school board leaders or state superintendents and send them a letter um, or an email uh, elevating the, the position of, of curricular materials. Really, our goal is to spotlight, you know, what happens when when these materials are used effectively. Fabulous. That was a great setup. Let's do it. I would love to hear some of your success stories. Yeah, Absolutely. So I, I made reference earlier to a set of leading states. So I can name just a couple of states of that 12 or 13. So Mississippi is one example. And Mississippi is often in the news for really beating the odds around literacy. They have some of the leading statistics in the country around improving reading rates, especially early reading rates, um, according to NAEP and, and things like that. And one of the ways they've done it is by focusing on quality literacy instruction and having legislation around the science of reading and then creating a clearinghouse at the state level of materials that meet the quality criteria that they have set forth in a very state-driven, you know, Mississippi educators working with other experts to understand and rate and give reviews of these materials. And so they have a wonderful platform that has just continued to expand. And then they have literacy coaches and just really continuing that professional learning journey. Um, states like Delaware and Tennessee are also leading here where they have invested a lot of state money in the professional learning piece. And frankly, the influx of money for federal uh, COVID recovery is another place where states have really leveraged additional dollars to say, you know what, we're going to have a pilot at the state level, an opt-in pilot. And if you want to try one of these, you know, five curricula that we've identified, um, you will get funding to come do professional learning, to come have that community of practice and work on implementation together. One thing that I've been really excited about is a, is an open uh, education resource called Open Syed, which is a science curriculum. And we've been seeing, um, you know, Open Syed share some really great stories about engaging students and and kind of transforming science education in a way that is really accessible um, for teachers, districts, and schools. I do have a personal story from my teacher days on just kind of the effects uh, or the impact of of high quality instructional materials in the classroom. So I had a I had a student who we'll just call Peter, um, and Peter had a condition that made it very difficult for him to uh, communicate uh, with speech. Um, because of that, he he'd always really struggled to connect with teachers and peers, and and definitely had not been exposed to much grade level content by the time he um, showed up in my classroom uh, his first day of freshman year of, of high school. Um, it didn't take long for me to recognize that Peter's favorite subject was math, um, my class, thank goodness. Um, but over the course of the three years that I ended up having him. Um, you know, in my class, we used a suite of digital um, math and communications tools to help propel him from a self-contained, um, you know, special education environment math course uh, to the general education pre-calculus class that, you know, 
some of the highest performing students in the school, you know, were, were enrolled in. Um, and I, I know I, I, I could not have just piecemealed together the, the types of instruction and the types of tools that a student like Peter needed to, you know, make that kind of progress in three years. Um, it was it was really my ability to, to access and to use um, comprehensive and intentional um, and evidence-based tools uh, to, that, that, that made that type of progress for him possible. Um, so I always kind of keep that story in mind just as, you know, to remember the importance of it and the, the difference that it, it can really make. That's beautiful. And you know that that's probably just one of thousands of stories. I'm wondering if we can zoom out just a little bit and talk about students a little bit more, um, because that was a beautiful personal story. And I'm wondering if as you're working in schools and districts and across states, if you're seeing a general trend toward higher achievement, lower behavior problems, like what are the trends that happen? What are the cultural shifts that happen when this takes root? Yeah, I love this question and this topic. And, and one of the things we, we didn't talk about when we were sort of framing what we even mean by high quality materials in the first place was this access to grade level content, which I think gets into the question that you just asked. So what uh, TNTP was the organization that did some of the foundational research around the need for this several years ago, and they did an incredibly comprehensive study of what was happening in actual classrooms. They had all kinds of artifacts, hundreds and hundreds of artifacts of instructional materials, and they did all these analyses of whether those materials were on grade level. And so, you know, they had a statistic that of this expansive study, 71% of students were succeeding on the assignments, but those same assignments met grade level standards 17% of the time. So that's a huge gap. This is really important. Let's listen again. 71% of students were succeeding on the assignments, but those same assignments met grade level standards 17% of the time. So students were succeeding. The message being sent home was, was probably kids are doing great, but it turned out that those were not the materials that those students deserved. So when, you know, your question about the culture shift and what this actually means for students in the classroom, when we as, as educators, as an education community, are not giving kids the chance to live up to their potential when we're not meeting them where they are, but we're, you know, sort of, you know, crippling them with materials that don't meet them where they are, we can't expect them to soar to the levels that they're capable of. And so what we do see in districts that are making these shifts is the students have, that have traditionally struggled the most, that are the most under-resourced, that, you know, often don't have access to the extra supports either at home or in the summer or out of school time, have that opportunity to, to meet those expectations and to rise to the level that any student is capable of. I would also just add that there's another dimension of this that really impacts kind of parents' views into education and the progress of their children. When students aren't consistently engaged with grade level content, the gap in perception between you know, how well that student is progressing academically and how, you know, where they actually are grows and grows and grows. And, and that results in, you know, a lot of problems, you know, later down the road. But, you know, for parents trying to understand their child's academic journey, they're looking at report cards that likely reflect lots of A's and B's, maybe a C here and there. And they're thinking, 
their child is doing great. They're on track. They are right where they're supposed to be. And if they haven't been being exposed regularly to grade level content, chances are they're they're behind. They they could be a year or two, you know, behind grade level. That's a barrier to parents really meaningfully engaging and being a partner in their child's learning with with teachers. Well, and it's infuriating, right? Because people don't know because it's not their job to know. And they assume that the people whose job it is are overseeing that. And it's just not happening. So the, the question that emerges is why is this allowed, which is why your organization exists? Definitely part of it. And I'll just piggyback and say, again, the pandemic really has shifted some of that. And the parents across the country had that front row seat to what was happening. So instead of just getting a report card, parents like me were sitting next to their fourth grader watching instruction happen. It was a very different level of engagement. And it really has, you know, in many different ways, ignited a fire of of family advocacy that folks like us are thrilled to see because without parents at the table asking for these changes and asking the critical questions at school board meetings and and deeply engaging and, and wanting these resources, that demand side isn't there. So we're hopeful that we can take a silver lining from this incredibly challenging time um, for everyone and, and have it increase the education levels of parents around all of these questions and teachers as well. Yeah. So in some ways, the disruption was needed. You said earlier, Josh, in regards to you know, how these shifts happen, that it's much easier if instructional leaders at the state or district level or even the site level are leading. But we don't want the average parent, like you said, who might be listening, to feel hopeless that they can't implement change that can be initiated anywhere along the line. How does a parent get started doing that or an individual teacher? Yeah, so you, you you set up that question really well, Christy, because it, it absolutely is the case that the change to, to increase the amount of, you know, high quality materials in schools can really happen at anywhere in the pipeline. It can be led or driven, you know, ground up by teams of educators um, who are who are passionate and, and see potential for a a new way or a new curriculum. Um, It can be driven by passionate district leaders. It can be driven by a state level priority or agenda um, and and, and be a little bit more top down. Um, Thankfully, all of those levels, you know, have ways for parents to, to plug in, to inform and to engage in the process. I'd start with, you know, one way being the regular engagements you have as a, as a parent with your, your teachers and your schools. Principals in particular have a, a, an enormous amount of say and potential um, to inform the materials used in their schools. And I know for a fact that all those folks are very receptive to parents and a parent feedback, a parent phone call, a parent letter, or a parent meeting. So that would be my my number one biggest suggestion. But parents can also write 
to their school boards. They can show up to school board meetings. They can write or inform state level education meetings through the office of the superintendent or um, you know, even the state legislature when these conversations emerge. And so that parent engagement into that all levels of those that that process is super, super important. And honestly, I, I think all of those decision makers you know, they, they tend to jump when parents start, you know, uh, getting a little bit more active. And I'll just piggyback on the school board point, again, having just come off of role as a school board member, school board members are the ones voting on these decisions. Josh is absolutely right that the teachers and principals and curriculum directors of districts are are making the, the recommendations to the school board, but at the end of the day, the school board votes. And so, you know, Parents are school board members' constituents. So doing that outreach, showing up at meetings, asking questions. Uh, the 74 Million, which is an education publication, had a great article, I think it was last September, about a group of parents in Minneapolis who showed up to their school board meeting with data and facts demanding a literacy plan and better literacy materials. Like That's the most exciting thing I can imagine. That type of engagement can really make a huge difference. So parents shouldn't feel discouraged. They shouldn't feel like there's no role for them. There are a lot of resources out there to educate yourself and to bring just even the right questions to a school board meeting. Yeah. I just want to end with a question. So there's a little bit of background to this question. My family and I, several years ago, we kind of made this vow that we would never ask the boring question of, so of so what do you do when we meet somebody? Because it's not a telling question, right? It's like a status question or something. But sometimes we do ask the question, so why do you care about what you do? And then an even more telling question is, why should I care about what you do? And so that's the question that I want to end with is tell our listeners why they should care about what you do. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll take this one first. Even before the pandemic, we, um, and, and when I say we, that's us in America, this, this, this nation, has increasingly asked more and more and more of our teachers. Um, we ask our teachers to be providers of instruction and, 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 and knowledge and information, as well as social workers and parents and therapists and healthcare providers and so many, so many other things. And so I think of high quality instructional materials um, and, and getting them to teachers as the clearest way that we can support and equip them to do their jobs. When it comes to making sure teachers have what they need to, to, do, to do all that we are asking them, that's on us. That is not on them. Um, and so for me, it comes down to a matter of if, if teachers are failing or if schools fail or if teachers fail, that's on us that's not on them um, because they were not equipped properly. And so that for me is why why this work matters so much. And that's why I think you all should care um, because we, we own this one together. Thank you, Josh, that's beautiful. So for me, you know, and I, and I hope I can convince listeners to, I really truly fundamentally believe in this American experiment of public education, that we educate all kids who enter our classrooms that we hold this sort of collective belief that they can achieve. Um, and that education is a ticket out of bad circumstances, into better circumstances, through opportunity. And I feel like when we don't equip teachers with the materials they deserve, 
we're asking them to do their job with one hand tied behind their back. So if we want education to hold the promise that people like me really believe it can, and I'm sure your listeners or they wouldn't you know, be taking time out to, to even be listening, uh, we need to do everything we can to elevate that relationship between teacher and child that's so critical to all the success and allow the teacher to focus on that with the support of these great tools and resources. Teachers get into this profession because they wanna change lives. It is all possible, it is all within our grasp. And this is one really important way to help them get there. You'll find links to Curriculum HQ, their interactive state map, the Collaborative for Student Success, and all other resources mentioned during the episode in the episode notes. And if you're searching for high quality instructional materials for your classroom, school, or district, the place to start is at edcuration.com. Matt Edwards, EdTech Coordinator at Merced County Office of Education in California says, what I like about this is that for district-led adoptions, this is a great resource for superintendents, assistant superintendents, and content coordinators to see all the things that are available. There hasn't been a simple way to do that until now. And Todd Robson, Director of Teacher and Learning at the Tiger Tualatin School District in Oregon said, I love it. I say that because having been inundated with the task of wading through a logjam of curriculum adoption leads that we've had in this district to stay on the seven-year cycle, ed curation will always be our first go-to. If you found this episode helpful, please like, follow, share, and comment. And join us again next week on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning.